invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to the book of Galatians. Galatians. And uh, Galatians chapter 1, and we are going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 1 and verses 1 through 5. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you'll find our passage on page 972. 972. I'll begin reading for us in verse 1 and read through to verse 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And as many of you know by now, uh, we are in a three-year series where we are giving special attention to our mission statement. And we're doing this by focusing on specific elements of our mission statement in six-month increments. And so you'll see here on the slide uh, that the first part of this year we focused on the glory of God. And the rest of this year we're going to be focusing on the theme of the gospel. And then next year we'll focus on making disciples and enjoying the gospel. And then the following year on living the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. And as I stated, the rest of this year, we're going to be focusing on the theme of the gospel. And as I began to reflect on the theme of the gospel, the book of Galatians immediately came to my mind. Um, I have actually preached through Galatians before. It was about 10 years ago, so it's been a long time. And actually, our men's Bible study has recently worked through the book of Galatians as well. And so some of you might naturally wonder, well, why are we returning to Galatians again? And the reason why we're turning to Galatians again is because it is hard for me to imagine another book in the Bible that more concisely and powerfully encapsulates and articulates the message of the gospel than Galatians. And you should know as well that as we return again to the book of Galatians, we are in good company. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he taught the book of Galatians more than once. And in his preface to his commentary on Galatians, he gives the reason why. Luther writes the following words, quote, I have taken in hand in the name of the Lord yet once again to expound the epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians, not because I desire to teach new things, or such as you have not known before, since that by the grace of Christ Paul is now thoroughly known to you, but that we have to fear lest Satan take from us this doctrine of faith and bring into the church again the doctrine of works and men's traditions. He goes on to say, This doctrine of faith can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. If this doctrine be lost, then is also the doctrine of truth life and salvation also lost and gone. If this doctrine flourish, then all good things flourish. Religion, the true service of God, the glory of God, the right knowledge of all things which are necessary 
for a Christian man to know, end of quote. And so Luther believed that in this little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians was this essential truth of God's grace and mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. And he believed that this truth was so essential to the health of any individual Christian and also to the health and flourishing of any local church. And so we're returning to the book of Galatians again. Luther actually referred to this short letter as his Katie von Bora. His Katie von Bora. Now, what does that mean? Well, Katie von Bora was his wife, and Luther loved his wife. He was a man who was in love with his wife, and so we know that he loved this letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. And I believe Luther loved this letter to the Galatians for a couple of reasons. One is because in this letter, in his um, battle against the Roman Catholic Church, he found such a devastating blow to the false gospel of works which Rome promotes. But then also, because at a personal level, it was through this letter that Luther came to know and experience the freedom and the joy that is offered to us in the gospel of God's free grace. So with that in mind, I want want to just issue a warning here as we embark on this new study, as we get into this letter. The warning is this. This letter has the power to change your life. This letter has the power to change the world. And in fact, it has. As Martin Luther read over this letter again and again and again, he discovered the radical message of God's free grace, which sparked the Protestant Reformation and changed the world forever. And so I'm grateful and full of hopeful anticipation as we embark once again on this study of Galatians. When starting a series in the letter on this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Galatians, I feel like I have to begin by confessing, my name is Bert Daniel, and I am a recovering Pharisee. My name is Bert Daniel, and I am a recovering Pharisee. Now, what is a Pharisee? The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who lived during Jesus' day, and they believed that their relationship with God was based upon their good deeds. And so they were orthodox in their theology. They were upright and ethical in their conduct. They were zealous in their religious duties. And Jesus saved his harshest critiques, his harshest rebukes for the Pharisees. And the reason, in large part, is because they didn't understand grace. In pride, they believed that they could earn, they could deserve merit God's favor, when instead the Bible teaches us that it's the humble that God saves, that God saves those who forsake hope in their own goodness and trust solely in the grace and in the mercy and in the love of God. Our series for, or our title for this series is Freedom and Grace, because that's what Galatians is about. Galatians is about God's radical grace and the freedom and joy that God's grace provides. And, take note of this, and the letter of Galatians is about our relentless propensity 
to trust ourselves and our own goodness rather than God's grace. And so understand that in order to be a Christian, you must be rescued from being a Pharisee. And it's a tricky thing. Because even those of us who have been rescued from being a Pharisee still struggle not to go back there. In that sense, we are all recovering Pharisees. We believe, if you are in Christ, we believe that salvation is by grace alone. And we really do believe that. But our hearts are suspicious. It's almost too good to be true. And so there is this quiet fear, unbelief, that perhaps God's love for us is conditioned upon our performance. And so through this letter, Paul wants us to know, he wants us to experience afresh the grace and the peace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In Paul's day, letters were, uh, when they opened uh, a letter, it would begin with a greeting. And the greeting was structured in such a way that the name of the sender was first, and then the name of the recipients, and then the greeting. It's much like actually we tag an email today. So if you were to send an email, it goes out with the name of the sender first, and then the recipient, and then there's the subject line or regarding. And so that's the way we uh, find the letter here, the opening of the letter here that Paul writes to the Galatians. That's the structure of the greeting. And so our outline this morning will simply be author, recipients, and message. Okay, so if you're taking notes this morning, this is our outline. Author, recipients, and message. And so I want us to start by looking, first of all, at the author of Galatians. The author of Galatians. Look there in verses 1 and 2, and we read these words. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. Now notice that Paul begins here, this letter, by identifying himself, and identifying himself as an apostle. Now, what is an apostle? Well, sometimes folks will use the term apostle to refer to someone who is particularly gifted at starting a new work. So someone might refer to a pioneer missionary in this way, a missionary who goes somewhere where the gospel has never been preached before. Or they might use this term to refer to a church planner, someone who is uh, going to a place and planting a new church. But I want to suggest that we need to be very, very careful about the way we use this term. And I think oftentimes when the term is used that way, it is unhelpful. Because what we need to understand here is that when Paul refers to himself as an apostle, he is communicating something uh, much more than just the fact that he is gifted in starting new works. Uh, Paul was, in fact, gifted in starting new works. He himself was a pioneer missionary. He himself planted churches. But he is, he is claiming something far more significant here when he identifies himself as Paul an apostle. What Paul is referring to here uh, to is a distinct and unique office, a, 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 an office that possessed uh, unique authority in the history of the church. 
When Paul speaks of being an apostle, Paul is identifying himself with a small, select group of disciples who saw the risen Christ and who were commissioned by Jesus to authoritatively proclaim his message and to record and preserve it for us in Holy Scripture. That's what Paul is referring to. That's what Paul is speaking of when he identifies himself as an apostle. So let me repeat that because it's very important. The apostles were those who saw the resurrected Christ. So after he was raised from the dead, they saw him physically. And then Jesus specifically commissioned them to proclaim his message and to record and preserve his message in Holy Scripture. And so right up front here we see Paul is writing to these churches and he identifies himself as an apostle. And in so doing, he is claiming a certain authority. An authority to speak authoritatively in their lives as it relates to Jesus and to the gospel. Now, of course, this is very relevant for our own day because for some time our culture has rejected the notion of absolute truth. And as a consequence, they have rejected the possibility of a final and absolute authority. You know, as a result, for many years, it seemed that the way this played itself out on the street level, the way it played itself out in our society, is that the greatest virtue in our society for some time seemed to be uh, the disposition to be non-committal when it came to truth claims. So, you know, if you were talking to somebody about truth, they might say, well, you know, you have your truth and I have my truth and who am I to judge your truth and who are you to judge my truth? I mean, it's all true, right? So that's kind of the way that it practically played out. Have you ever heard someone say something like that? So, so there was a denial of absolute truth. We can't really know finally what's true a denial of a final absolute authority. And the way that kind of played itself out in everyday life and conversations was just a non-committal approach to truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, it's all truth. But it seems that the winds of the spirit of this age are now blowing in a different direction. So that there is still, at a larger macro level, a denial of absolute truth broadly speaking, in our culture, in our society. But now the emphasis seems to have shifted from none of us can really know what the truth is to each of us has the right and the authority to determine our own truth. So so notice how this is happening. There's still a, a rejection of absolute truth, But now folks feel more empowered than ever to determine their own truth and to declare it with confidence and with authority and with certainty and to insist that you comply to it, to their truth, to their conclusions. And if you don't, well, then you may be accused of violating their personhood or committing violence against them. And they might conclude that you need to be villainized, silenced, or canceled. It's a strange thing. There is still a denial of the possibility of absolute truth 
and yet individuals seem to be more certain and absolute about what they claim than ever. And so our current cultural moment begs the question, can we know the truth? Are we all free to determine our own truth? Is the notion of truth merely dependent upon power? And what I mean by that is, is the notion of truth merely dependent upon who has the biggest platform? Who has the most followers? Who can shout the loudest? Who can cower others into submission? If that's the case, that would be a horrible world to live in. And so what is the truth? What is the source of truth? What or who possesses authority to determine the truth? Of course, this is a big topic and there's so much that we could say about it. But just notice what's addressed here in our text this morning. Paul says here, and this is what Christians have believed for over 2,000 years. Paul says here that he and other authors of Scripture speak with an authority that has been given to them by the resurrected Christ. It's an apostolic authority. And notice the source of this authority. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In other words, the source of Paul's apostolic authority is not human, but it is divine. Do you see that? It is not from men. In other words, it's not an authority that Paul simply claims for himself, nor is it an authority that came to him by other men, or by a church, or by a council. Not only that, Paul goes another step further. He says it's not from men, nor is it through man. Now what does he mean by that? Paul is saying, the apostolic authority that I possess didn't come to me from God through another man. It's not, it didn't come to me through human agency. So that it's like Peter the Apostle conferred it upon me, or James the Apostle conferred it upon me, or a church or a council. It was from God but came through them. No, Paul is claiming here that this apostolic authority that he possesses came to him directly from God through Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And notice the very next thing he says. And I believe he says this because he's he's thinking about apostleship. He says, and from God the Father who raised him from the dead. He immediately goes to the resurrection, right? Because what did we say an apostle is? An apostle is one who saw the resurrected Christ and was specifically commissioned by Jesus to proclaim and preserve his message. And so when Paul claims his apostleship, he immediately thinks resurrection. And you see, Paul, his experience with the resurrected Christ was different than the other apostles. Paul did not live, or or, or Paul did not um, interact with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Paul was not present when Jesus died on the cross. 
Paul did not see Jesus immediately after he had been raised from the dead. In fact, Jesus then ascended to his father, and it was sometime after that that the resurrected Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. At that point in Paul's life, Paul hated the church. Paul was intent on killing Christians. And yet the resurrected Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus, changed him, transformed him forever, and called him to be an apostle. And it's with this apostolic authority now that the Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Galatia. Paul, speaking of the resurrection appearances of Jesus, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 7 and 9, Then he, that is Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. See, that was critical to them being apostles. Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appeared to them. Then he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So notice this, my friends. When when Paul, understand this, when Paul appeals here as he's opening this letter to his apostolic authority, understand that this is much different than your friend claiming, God told me to buy this house. Or, God told me to go to this college. Okay, And and I'll say, I think we need to be very careful talking that way. It's also different than coming across a preacher on TV and hearing him say, God told me to tell you to send me money. And we're like, right. You should be like, right. Right? No. When the Apostle Paul appeals to his apostolic authority here in the opening of this letter, Paul is acknowledging a unique authority that has been granted to him and the other authors of Scripture that has been granted to them by God and by the resurrected Christ so that their words preserved for us in Holy Scripture are in fact the very words of God. And they speak with authority. In that sense, what they say is true. It is ultimately true. This is a theme that we will see developed further and further throughout this letter because Paul is contending with false teachers in Galatia and the question comes up, well, why should we listen to Paul and not these false teachers? And the answer is, Paul is an apostle and he has unique authority given to him by the resurrected Christ. And so as we embark on this study, it does us well to remember that we are not merely reading and studying the words of a man who lived 2,000 years ago. We are reading and studying the words of a man who was divinely inspired by God. And therefore, we are reading and studying the very words of God. So this is the author, Paul the Apostle, and he speaks with apostolic authority. Secondly, notice the recipients of Galatians. The recipients of Galatians. So look there in verses 1 and 2 and we read these words. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Here it is. To the churches of Galatia. Now as we stated before, Paul was a missionary. He was a church planner. And Paul founded these churches in Galatia. Uh, These churches 
were located in now a region which today is southern Turkey, uh, just north of the Mediterranean Sea. But as Paul writes these churches, he is deeply concerned with their well-being. It seems that after Paul had gone to these uh, areas, these cities in southern Galatia, that, uh, and he had planted these churches, that after he left, there were those who came behind him. There were false teachers who followed him. They're known as the Judaizers. Uh, they were from Jerusalem, and they were teaching that Paul's gospel was true, but it was deficient. And they taught that, yes, salvation is by grace, and it is through faith in Jesus, but salvation also requires the observance of Jewish customs and submission to Jewish law. In particular, they were adamant that if the Galatians wanted to experience salvation, then they must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. So, in short, their message was salvation comes to us through the gospel and law. We can experience salvation by grace and merit. We can know God's redemption through faith and works. And Paul will go on to say in this letter that this is not the same gospel he preaches. It is a different gospel. In fact, it is no gospel at all. We will get into this more next week, but look there just briefly at verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, I want us just to take a moment here and reflect upon Paul's great love, Paul's great affection for the churches in Galatia. We can imagine as a parent as we read this letter that as Paul thinks about the current spiritual state of these churches, that he's deeply disappointed, that he's frustrated, that he's saddened. It's apparent that he loves these churches. He had spent some time caring for them and teaching them. And this church and these collection of churches now are on the brink of forsaking the gospel. In fact, they are on the precipice of ceasing to be a true church because they are on the precipice of rejecting altogether the true gospel. And Paul in this letter will warn them. He will admonish them. He will rebuke them. But one of the things we see throughout this letter is he does so with such love and with hope. In fact, it's remarkable, and a number of people have commented on it, that even in opening this letter, given the spiritual condition of these churches, that he refers to them as the churches of Galatia. That's, that's grace. And then in at least nine occasions in this short letter, he refers to them as brothers and appeals to them and assumes that they are still brothers and sisters in Christ. So that even when these churches are wayward and confused, Paul loves the people of God. He, he loves this, these churches and he's committed to their good and he believes and hopes the best for them. I, I want to point this out because at Crawford Avenue, we are firm believers that Christians should love the church. That Christians should be submitted 
or, or, or I'm sorry, committed to the church and serve the church. That Christians should join a local church and be a faithful member of a local church. And the reason why we are convinced of this and the reason why we believe this is because we see it in Scripture. It's what we see in the New Testament. The church in the New Testament was far from perfect, but she was and she is Christ's bride. And so where do we find the apostles in the New Testament? We find them over and over again, loving and serving and caring for and investing in and ministering with Christ's church. It's also worth noting that we are a church that loves and cares about the truth. We want to be faithful to the Bible. I think in the, in the best sense, we want to get it right and be faithful to God's Word. But there's a danger here that we need to be aware of as a church. Yes, we should seek to find and commit to a biblical and healthy local church. That's right and good. And at the same time, though, we must remember that no church is perfect. Not in this life. And so in many ways, and we see this, I think, with Paul throughout the New Testament and his relationship to the different churches, in many ways, our relationship to the church needs to be somewhat of a reflection of how a healthy marriage operates. You know, in a healthy marriage, we must learn to love our spouse, not just for who we hope they will be one day, but for who they are now. And in many ways, it's the same with the church. Yes, we should seek a biblical church and a healthy church and a faithful church, but we also need to recognize that no church is is perfect, and we need to learn, we need to discipline ourselves to love our church, not just for who we hope she will be one day, but for who she is now, even with all her weaknesses and flaws. Paul loved the churches of Galatia like that. And so I wonder, what is your relationship with the brothers, with the sisters? Is there a particular church that you can call home, that you have committed to, that you are committed to loving and serving and investing in? If not, I would encourage you to seek out a biblical, faithful, healthy church and commit to it. And then love it. Love it with all your heart. Not just for who you hope it will be one day, but for who she is now. Third, the message of Galatians. So we've considered the author. It's the Apostle Paul, and he speaks with apostolic authority. We've considered the recipients. It's the Galatians, and they're in a mess, but Paul loves them, and he's caring for them and pursuing them. And then third, the message of Galatians. And we find this in verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here we find the greeting. And it was common in Paul's day for a letter to include a greeting, to begin with a greeting. And this here is a common greeting that was used in Paul's day. Grace to you and peace. But Paul, like he does in his other letters, he fills this greeting with uh, the content of the gospel and really with the message that he wants to communicate throughout the rest of this letter. 
So let's look at it. He says grace. This is where Paul begins. He starts with the word grace. It's just worth noting that Paul does not begin the letter with good works or good intentions or be a good person because all of those things might have their proper place, but not unless you start with grace, the grace of God, grace alone. This is how we come to know God. And then Paul follows grace with peace. You see that there, grace to you and peace. Now, what is the relationship between these two things as it relates to the gospel, between grace and peace? Well, we can think about it this way. The relationship between the two is like root and fruit. It is like a source and the outflow. It is like cause and effect. By the grace of God, we come to experience peace with God. So, it is by the grace of God that our sin is atoned for. It is by the grace of God that our guilt is removed. It's by the grace of God that our consciences are quieted and we are assured of our acceptance before God. So the grace of God results in peace with God. But the grace of God not only results with pe- in peace with God, it also results in peace amongst ourselves and with one another. Because as we experience the grace of God, then what should happen as a result is that humility should replace pride. And kindness should replace self-righteousness. And grace should replace a list of unrealistic expectations. And when that happens, then there's unity, there's love, there's peace among God's people. As Paul opens with these two characteristics of the gospel, grace and peace, I wonder, is this something that you want for yourself? Is it something that we want for our church? God is offering it to us, and it comes to us through the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, notice in speaking of the grace and the peace of God, Paul immediately speaks of God and the atoning work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Look there in verse 3. Through five. So this is not just some generic grace and peace that he's talking about that any Greek or Roman might refer to. Paul is speaking of grace and peace that comes to us through God and His Son, Jesus Christ. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And notice that as Paul... Um, attributes this grace, attributes this peace uh, to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ, that immediately Paul goes to the cross, right? Because this is at the heart of the gospel. This is how we experience God's grace and His peace. And notice just quickly here that, that Paul mentions four truths about the death of Jesus. Four truths. One is that Jesus died willingly. Do you see it there? The Lord Jesus who gave Himself. So what we see here is that Jesus voluntarily, willingly gave Himself for our salvation and redemption. It is important for us to remember that at the end of the day, at the cross, it was Jesus who was calling the shots. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, 
and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. Listen, my friends, if you ever doubt God's love for you, if you ever doubt Christ's love for you, remember that He laid it down. He gave it up. He laid down His life for you. So we see here that Jesus died willingly. Secondly, we see that Jesus died in our place. Jesus died in our place. Look there in the text. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins. Here it is. Or I'm sorry, there, I, I just said it. Who gave Himself, here it is, for our sins. There it is. He died in our place. And this idea is at the heart of the gospel. It's the idea of substitution. That Jesus was a substitute for us. That he died in our place and took our sins. He died our death so that we might experience the life that he deserved. Philip Ryken, a Christian pastor, writes on this point, quote, He gathered up all our sins, he put them on his shoulders, and paid for them with his death. Thus, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was not merely an example of supreme sacrifice, but an actual atonement for sin, end of quote. And that word there, our, that really is a precious word as we reflect on it more. It's a precious word as we think about our own salvation and redemption. And I'll confess that I didn't see this as clearly until I was reading Martin Luther's commentary and he helped me see this. And I'll just say this for this series. If I give you five quotes in one sermon from Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, just understand I could have given you ten, okay? I am restraining myself. I love it. Luther writes this, quote, Weigh diligently every word of Paul, and mark well the pronoun our. You will easily say and believe that Christ, the Son of God, was given for the sins of Peter and Paul, or of other saints whom we account worthy of this grace. But it is a very hard thing that you, which judge yourself unworthy of this grace, should from your heart say and believe that Christ was given for your invincible, infinite, and horrible sins. Let us learn here of Paul to fully and truly believe that Christ was given not for feigned sins, not for small, but for great and huge sins, not for few, but for many, not for conquered sins, but for invincible sins, end of quote. In other words, Christ was given for our sins, for real sins, for our small sins and great sins, and not just for the sins of others like Peter and Paul and others that we might ascribe to be more moral or ethical than us or more deserving than us. No, Jesus Christ was given for our sins, for all of them, if we trust and believe in him. And so Jesus gave his life willingly. He gave it voluntarily. He died in our place. Third, Jesus died to deliver us. Notice there in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. And so we need to understand that in Galatians, Paul unpacks this, that, that not only did Christ die to deliver us from the guilt and condemnation of our sin, Christ died to deliver us from the power of sin, to change us and transform us, to give us new hearts and new desires so that we long to follow Him and are empowered to obey Him and walk in obedience. 
And then fourth, notice the fourth truth regarding Jesus' death. Jesus died according to the purpose of God. Look there in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Here it is. According to the will of our God and Father. So we've seen that Jesus gave himself voluntarily. But now we see that it was according to the will and the purpose of God. In fact, in the book of Acts, we are told that Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews gathered together in Israel to do what God had predestined to take place. Or Isaiah the prophet says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So God purposed Jesus' death. And Jesus willingly, voluntarily yielded up His life. In other words, the Father and the Son were in perfect, united, in perfect love and unity in their work and act of redemption. Now, the reason why I stress that point is because some have wrongly charged that the doctrine of substitutionary atonement implies that God is a reluctant partner in our salvation. It's though Jesus was forced to die on the cross to convince the Father to love us. Understand, my friends, the Bible never suggests such a thing. Nor does substitutionary atonement suggest such a distorted understanding of salvation and God's work of redemption. Listen to the text. See what Paul says here. Jesus gave Himself for our sins according to the will of God our Father. Jesus did not die on the cross in order that the Father might love us. Jesus died on the cross because the Father loves us. The Son and the Father were perfectly united in their intention to redeem us and to save us. This is why the gospel is a gospel of grace. Because God has done for us in Jesus Christ what we could not do for ourselves. He has purposed and accomplished our salvation through the death of His Son. And all that is left is for us to receive it by faith. Some of you this morning might be troubled by a guilty conscience. Perhaps it's a sin that you committed six months ago or a year ago or ten years ago. Or maybe it's just the ongoing battle with sin that you deal with every day and it nags at you. It burdens you. You can't shake the guilt. Perhaps you've said before, well, I just can't forgive myself. But I want to challenge you on that. I want to ask you, based on what the Apostle Paul has said here. Who are you to forgive yourself? Do you understand what Paul is saying here? God crushed His Son. And Jesus voluntarily gave up His life so that you might be redeemed and saved. And if you are in Christ God has accounted for all your sins and declared you to be forgiven. Understand this. Before the throne of God, even if you wanted to forgive yourself, you don't have the power or authority to do it. 
Only God can do that. And He has done it in His Son, Jesus Christ. He has declared through the work of His Son, Jesus, justified, atoned for, accounted for. There is nothing you can add to that. What is your forgiveness compared to the forgiveness of God that He has already declared in Jesus? My friends, just receive it. Receive it. Welcome it. Rejoice in it. Walk in it. And then we'll conclude where Paul concludes. Notice in verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And understand this. This is not just a tagline that, that Paul places here at the end of his greeting. Oh yeah, glory be to God. No. No. In fact, this is at the heart of the debate that is taking place in the Galatian churches. Who will get the glory? Will it be us because of our good works? You know, Jesus got us just far enough. And then, thanks be to us, we got ourselves over the line. So praise be to us. Is that who will get the glory? Or will God get the glory? And Paul is insistent in this letter, God will get the glory. Because salvation is not by human works or efforts or intentions, but salvation is by grace and grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you see how, how this is a reflection of our mission statement? What is our mission statement? We exist to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. What's the relationship between gospel and glory? We saw as we focused on the glory of God for six months that, that God does everything for His own glory. And in fact, that's for, for our good. And God is nowhere more glorified than He is in the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. In the free grace and mercy that He shows us in our redemption. And He is worthy. He is worthy of all the glory, all the praise. And Paul insists that He is right here up front in this letter. Speaking on this point, John Calvin writes, quote, So glorious is His redemption that it should ravish us with wonder. And then speaking specifically in regards to verse 5, he writes, it must be at the same time viewed as a general exhortation for all of us. Every instance in which the mercy of God occurs to our remembrance ought to be embraced by us as an occasion of ascribing glory to God. End of quote. So my friends, even as we recounted the grace and the mercy of God this morning shown to us in Jesus Christ, may we glorify God. May we worship Him. May we praise Him, for His redemption should ravish us with wonder. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. We thank You and praise You, especially, Lord, for Your grace and mercy that You have shown us in Christ. We thank You that it is out of Your great love for us that You purposed and planned our redemption. And we thank You that it was out of your son's love for you and obedience to your will 
and out of His great love for us, that He atoned for our sins, that He was raised from the dead. And we thank You, Lord, that then in Your great mercy and grace that You called men like the Apostle Paul and others to proclaim this message, this good news, to record it and preserve it for us in Holy Scripture so that 2,000 years later, we have it, we possess it, and we can know this good news. Lord, we do pray that You would ravish our hearts with the wonder and glory of Your grace. And Lord, may we increasingly, as individuals and as a church, delight in ascribing to You all glory all honor, and all praise. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.